Wow, I thought, you know, I'm going to be talking in 1 Thessalonians 5. The pastor didn't ask us whether we'd greet each other with a holy kiss or not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's that it says holy greet each other with a holy kiss and we can talk about it but culturally it's kind of funny because you know we are obviously integrated with males and females kind of sitting amongst each other but in most eastern cultures certainly when I grew up going to a Hindu uh, temple even Sikh males and females are on separate sides in the old Jewish custom females were often on a second floor and the males were on the main floor and um, same with um, when you go to a mosque, it's the same thing separated. So at that time, when Paul's telling about greeting each other with a holy kiss, he was talking about really, you know, the kiss on each cheek, not on the lip thing, you know, just uh, holy, which is what it intended to be. But culturally here in the West, we're kind of weird about kisses, too much Hollywood. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and um, we are very grateful for your love. We're grateful that you are a holy and righteous God. And then we talk about your love, but you're also pure, holy, and righteous. And that's a good thing. It may seem hard for us to appreciate, but your wrath is a good thing. Everything about you is good in every single way. There is nothing better than you. So Lord, I pray that we will see your goodness in every word of scripture. We will see that you are so good that you want only good for us. The enemy questioned that from the garden and still questions that every day in us. What's that seed of doubt about your goodness, Lord? I pray for the men that they will walk in the faith of who you really are. Loving you every more, trusting you more and more. Surrendering more and more, being obedient to you, seeking your face, talking to you, praying that you might get every bit of the glory you deserve. In the holy, holy name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to go through the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And wow, it's a doozy. There's a lot there. Um, I didn't even know where to cut it off. I kept going into it and studying it and then more and more. And um, we'll see where we go. So let's start with the first three verses. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, Pastor talked that we're going to be moving from Thessalonians to a study after we complete Second Thessalonians to the study of Peter. So I'm going to now go to 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Paul was encouraging the Thessalonian church, saying, stand fast. Okay, flee. He said he'd given some things to do. Flee sexual immorality, but stand fast in your faith. There's good coming. And he's talking about the rapture. He's talking about what he's going to do. There's good coming. And then now, at the beginning of chapter 5, he transitions and moves over, and he's talking here about what's going to happen. And it's not good news for those who don't know Jesus. Okay? It's very strong words. Okay? He says, <clears throat> he lets them know, look, I've already told you. If you're following the faith, if you're trusting in God, if you're walking with him, you'll know what's going on. You'll be sensitive to where things are in the spirit. Know what's going to be happening. Okay? And he's going to elaborate on that. But he says, he says the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is mentioned over 20 times in the Old Testament. I think about 26, 27, depending on your translation. Um, it's mentioned over half a dozen times in the New Testament. It refers to some things in terms of God's judgment. It's all about the judgment of the Lord. Okay? In the Old Testament, some of it was happened, where he judged the countries at that time, and some of it was prophecy of what's going to come. In the New Testament, it is all about prophecy of what's going to be coming. It's all talking about what's going to happen. So when we're talking about the day of the Lord, the other term that's commonly used with that is the beginning of what we call the great tribulation. Okay? There's the tribulation that we're suffering in the world right now because it's under the dominion of the Antichrist. Okay? And that may, is going to increase. It talks about that. That will get worse. But there will come a time when the Lord will basically say the same thing that Jesus said on the cross, but meaning something slightly different. It is finished. His patience, his time here, what he's going to suffer with evil is finished. Okay, so God has a plan to deal with evil. He gave us a way out with Jesus. Every single person, every single person Every single person has that available to them, to come to Christ. Some believe that's not so. God only wants a few saved and all that. We can get into a long discussion. That is not the will of the Lord. The God specifically says he wishes all to be saved. His heart is that every single human being comes to the kingdom, comes into heaven. That's why he provided the way through Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of God. Free in terms of what Jesus did but costly, tremendously costly to God. But when it, it costs us our lives and our wills, it is a surrender on our part, or His will and not our will. And part of it is because of God's plan. He's trying to conform us to like Jesus. We've been like the fallen Adam, and He wants us to be like Jesus. So our surrender, becoming bondservants of the Lord, allows Him to do His work in us. So, 
The day of the Lord, it says, comes as a thief in the night. Now, this term thief in the night here, and, and you look at the verse that says afterwards, okay, sudden destruction. So when they say thief, they're not talking like sneaky. They're talking like thief, like unanticipated, sudden, dramatic. It'll happen, bang, like that, okay? And when it happens, sudden destruction will come upon them. People think everything's fine. I don't have to worry about it. They've been talking about Jesus coming back for over 2,000 years. Over and over, they keep talking about it. I haven't seen it happen. It's not going to happen. It's not real anyways. It's a fairy tale. It's a mythology. That's what many believe. It's a crutch that you have to believe in. God anticipated all that. And that's why he tells them. They'll think everything's fine. Things are better. We don't have to worry about that. But when it comes in, he also used the term labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Okay? We've had a number of babies born this year within our body. Praise God. It's lovely to see the new life. Hi, Lucas. Lovely to see new life. But when you're in labor, dang, you're in labor. You really can't stop it. We try. Okay? I can go into long stories of what they did. Back in the day when they, you had a premature baby, you know what they gave pregnant women to stop them from going to labor? Alcohol. Literally, IV infusion of alcohol because it slowed down the labor. Didn't stop it, slowed it down. Now we have other ones that we use that are safer and better. Okay? But the principle is we really can't do a good job of stopping it. Once it's your time, once it's your time to give birth, you're in labor. It's a done deal. Okay? It's going. And what happens with labor? It's painful. Guys, you don't know what that's about. The closest a guy can feel is passing a kidney stone. So if you've ever had a kidney stone, pastor, you know what I'm talking about. That's the closest a man will come to feeling what labor's like. Okay? It's intense pain. Sometimes it goes away for a moment, but the intensity is going to happen with more frequency and greater severity. That's what's going to happen at the time of the day of the Lord. Okay, now, he says that, but concerning the times and seasons, okay, there's two Greek words here that are described. We use one, times are called chronos, that's where you get the word chronometer, okay, that means time, as time passes moment by moment, and then the other one is seasons, the Greek word for that is kairos, okay, that means kind of times in terms of a general idea of what's happening. We won't know the exact hour or specific time. We will know the season. We'll get a sense of what's going on. I want you to understand something. Our culture, particularly here in the West, is changing faster and faster and faster. It's being driven by chronos. Moment now, now, now. Forgetting about times that pass, forgetting about trends, not seeing where things are really going. They have no sense of the forest. They can only see the trees. Okay? People have lost perspective of things. They don't see how things are repeating and cycling back. We read books like Animal Farm or 1984, 
And at that time, those were warnings of what would happen. They now appear to be instruction books of what to do. Okay? It's the culture, the media. And looking at that phone, that phone, and if you look at whatever your search is on your home page, whether it's whatever web browser you use, all the stuff that's populated, okay, the vast majority is controlled by the enemy, by the prince of this world. I want to emphasize to you, I'm not saying you need to be paranoid about it, but I'm saying underneath that current, just, just guiding things along, pushing things along, communicating a certain narrative about this is what's got to happen. We've got to do these things. Everything that's being um, pushed forth is an agenda by the enemy. We have to be sensitive to that. We need to know the season we're in. We need to know the trend and the time. And that's what the Lord's talking about. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew 24, 15 to 35. This is Jesus on the Mount of Olives communicating to the body. It's called, often called the Olivet Discourse. And on, he says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop, housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Shabbat. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, the vultures will gather. There the vultures will gather. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs got tender, get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, I'm not going to go through a whole long discussion of that. That in itself could be many sermons. The point that I want to mention and what I talked about, this is Jesus himself foretelling what's going to happen. He's talking specifically about the rapture, okay, but he's also talking about the judgment that's going to come. And that's what Paul's alluding to. So Paul obviously got that message. Now, Thessalonians, as I mentioned, this book was written before the Gospels came out. There was communication, verbal communication, but there was no written scriptures before that time. So he could have talked with Peter or with any of the other apostles and find out, found out about it. But regardless, the Holy Spirit could have communicated to him, told him exactly what to know. Okay? So you just have to realize that all scripture, when you're interpreting scripture, use scripture to interpret scripture. Side by side, first and foremost, but also throughout the, the book and the chapter and then the other ones. Do not take the verses in isolation. So, there are a couple of things we need to be aware of. When it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen at an unexpected hour. When it's gonna happen, everybody's gonna be carrying on like businesses as usual okay people will be surprised and you have to realize there's going to be trials at that time and there's going to be deceivers and so the more sensitive we are to the spirit the more in tune we are with God the less likely we'll be deceived the more worldly we are the more our choices show that we've made compromises the more we'll be blinded we'll be walking in darkness When we read last week about 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, I'm going to read from the voice translation. Um, On that day with a command that thunders into the world, with the voice of a chief heavenly messenger, and with a blast of God's trumpet, the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and all those who died in the anointed one, our liberating king, will rise from the dead first. Then we who are alive and left behind will be snatched up together with them, into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is how we, the resurrected and the living, will be with him forever. In Zechariah 14, 5, then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the Kadosh, will be with you, which is translated saints here in the New King James, holy ones in other translations. Um, we're not sure whether that means us, those who come back, will be coming back at the second coming with, and some believe that, some say it'll be the angels, we don't know for sure. God knows, of course. The point that I'm letting you know is you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware that there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a time we're going to have to account. And God's judgment is actually an extension of his mercy. God's going to shake the foundation of the world because he wants to get people's attention. If you look at what's happening right now, I mean, I've enjoyed going to the movies and I like the big um, special effects with all in the big movie theaters, but the more and more, it's getting, everything is more and more, more and more. They've created this, a new exhibit in, Las Vegas called the Sphere, where it's a bunch of L 
LCD or LCD screens and you can go inside and it just creates literally almost like a virtual environment. People are getting so stimulated by things of the world, it's going to take something fundamentally radical to shake them. To shake them at that time to see their need. Even at that time when there's that tribulation, there are still going to become those who are going to choose Jesus. But even in that, like people will find ways to rationalize and explain things away. Not seeing that the very foundation underneath them is shattered. So moving on to verses 4 and 5 in chapter 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So Moore says in the Semitic language, when they talk about sun, you know, you look in the sun means you're that in likeness in nature. Those of you who know my son, people say, ah, he's just like you. So when you have an offspring, they're a lot like their parent. So that's what he's alluding to. We're sons. We're supposed to be like sons of light. Okay, darkness here is the Greek word skotos, and it really means ignorance. Okay, it's it's it, um, it's it's a blindness. It's also wickedness. So that darkness they're talking about, that sphere of darkness, is going to be ignorant, is going to be blind, and is going to be morally corrupt. That's the nature of that darkness. And there's going to be a contrast, and you can see that. People of the day, that means people of the book, people of light, people of Jesus, are going to experience the rapture. The people of the darkness, the people of the night, are going to experience the day of the Lord. People of the day are going to be caught up in heaven. The people of the night are going to be destroyed. The people of the day have spiritual life. The people of the night are spiritually dead. Those of the day, we have hope. With those of the night, there's none. No hope. Day people dwell in spiritual light, while night people dwell in spiritual darkness. Those of the day are spiritually alert, while those of the night are asleep. Those of the day are spiritually sober, while those of the night are spiritually drunk. And those of the day are forever with the Lord, praise God. Those of the night are never with the Lord. So Paul then says in verses 6 to 8, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So I already talked about the contrast between the day and night, and then Paul elaborates even further about that here, and talking about what that looks like, and what people who are spiritually asleep and Ephesians talk about awake, O sleeper. We're called to be awake. We're called to be sober. Sober means level-headed, steadfast. Sober is some reflective. Sober is somebody 
who is not in a fog, who's not confused, who's not befuddled, who has clarity. But sleep, people are asleep or ignorant. When you're asleep, you don't know what's going on. Things happen around you, you don't even know. When you're asleep, you don't really feel much. Unless somebody awakens you, you're asleep, you can't feel it. You've had people sleep, you know, especially if they're drunk and asleep. You can do almost anything you want with them. And because, again, they have no defense. When you're asleep, you have no defense, no protection. And lastly, when you're asleep, of course, you're useless. You're inactive. You're just laying there. You're not fighting or working for the kingdom. That's the choice that Paul contrasts with them. Some of you may like this, this little story. Um, during the Revolutionary War, a loyalist spy appeared at the headquarters of the Hessian commander, Colonel Johann Rahl. So the British brought these German mercenaries, they called the Hessians, and they fought for the British, and they brought them to America to um, basically fight the colonists, fight the American colonists at that time. So a spy appeared at the headquarters carrying an urgent message. He basically said General George Washington and his Continental Army had secretly crossed the Delaware River that morning and were advancing on Trenton, New Jersey, where the Hessians were encamped. The spy was denied an audience with the commander and instead wrote his message on a piece of paper. A porter took the note to the Hessian colonel, but because Rawl was involved in a poker game, he stuffed the unread note in his pocket. When the guards of the Hessian camp began firing their muskets in a futile attempt to stop Washington's armor, Rawl was still playing cards. Without time to organize, the Hessian army was captured. The battle occurred the day after Christmas, 1776, giving the colonists a late present of their first major victory of the war. There's so many different analogies about that, about those who fall asleep, about being watchmen. We're called to be watchmen, and watchmen on the walls, not asleep. Now, I'm talking obviously spiritual sleepiness, as opposed to you need to take your sleep at night. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. But you have to be on guard to really watch yourself to see, are you becoming more and more sober, more and more awake to the realities of what God's doing? Or are we becoming more dulled? And a lot of that will depend on the choices that we make moment by moment in terms of what we expose ourselves to and what we choose to keep ourselves away from. So moving on to verses 9 to 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So the good news is, you know, those the elect, and as I read in Matthew with Jesus mentioned, the elect will be taken away. We will not suffer the wrath of God. Anybody comes in a position, talks about that we're going to suffer God's wrath, that is not based on Scripture. We will not suffer the wrath of God. Okay? We won't. Wrath is only for those who don't have a relationship with Him through Christ. And what Pastor was sharing, because wrath is coming, 
and we don't know when that's going to happen, all the more urgent to communicate the message of the gospel. People will be literally dying and going to hell. Do we really believe it? Do we just say, oh, that's up to them. God's going to save who wants to. We don't have to worry about that. It's all the Holy Spirit's job. Or do we say, God, we know nobody gets saved apart from you. We know, Holy Spirit, you're the one who draws. We know you do the vast majority of all the work. But as your spirit is moving, use me as a vessel for your spirit to work through. That at the moment, at the right chronos, at the right time, that I might say the right word in the encouragement to lead others or point others in your direction. To point them to you, to share it, or actually share the gospel message. If we're, as- if we're asleep, we won't know when the Spirit's moving. If we're awake, the Spirit will tweak us. Go talk to him. Go sit beside so-and-so. Ask him. I know you're busy. You want to go. Just talk. And you'll, the Spirit won't yell. It'll be soft. And it'll invite you. Won't push you. God doesn't need us to get his job done. He doesn't. He's the God of the universe. He's completely self-sufficient. Jesus did not need to die on the cross because he needed more love from us. He didn't. But because he is perfect in love, because he is perfect in love, he chose willingly to go to the cross. Because the nature of love is love wants to expand and grow and to love others. And that's the character, the goodness of God. Do we have that same willingness and goodness of others? Do we believe and trust? Are we willing? We have to be awake. And so Paul's talking to the Thessalonians and letting you know these are the things you're going to have to do. Don't be asleep, be awake. He wants to encourage them. And he says, what else? What I love what he says, encourage one another. We don't do this alone. Not just me and Jesus. We're not lone rangers in our faith. We do it as a body together. We encourage one another together. That is the hallmark of a true Christian faith is it something that's communal in that sense. Yes, there's a priesthood. Yes, we have direct access to the throne as an individual, as a believer, as a son of God. But we also are corporately part of the body. And part of that encouragement is to see others and be encouraged by their walk with the Lord and encourage us in our walk with the Lord. Just as we were encouraged in worship. When you look around and see others singing, you're encouraged to sing more. If you've been to a church where nobody's singing, it's really hard to sing. I know, I've been there. It's like, I'll still sing because I love Jesus, but it's harder. It's, it's work sometimes. It's not that much work because I still love Jesus, but it's just kind of downing. just really suppresses things. and definitely suppresses the spirit. So, um, let's move on to the next in First Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So, First, Paul says, hey, we're doing this together to encourage one another and that we all have that responsibility and that's part of being the body together. And then he points to those, and the Greek word for that is all three. It's not like there are three separate categories. It's like one category with three subsets. They do all of them. So they provide spiritual coverage, 
okay? They're there to guide and admonish. That means to, to correct you on the path of the Lord, okay? Okay, and they work for you. And he talks about labor or toil. It's really hard work. The work they do, the spiritual weight that they carry. People underestimate that. For those who are in leadership, like with Pastor and Brother Glenn, are in leadership, and, and they're carrying the weight for the body. They're carrying the spiritual weight for each one of us. They pray for you, pray continually for you. And if there's a problem, the enemy is going to attack who first? It's going to take the head, okay? The enemy always attacks the head because he figures if he attacks the head, everybody else will scatter, okay? If pastor is taken out, how is that going to affect? Are we going to have church? What are we going to do? Are we going to get together? What are we going to do? Who's going to talk? What's going to happen? It's going to throw things. Fortunately, we have plurality of leadership, so in that sense, there are others who can step in some roles and do things. That's what a healthy body does. But the principle being is they have a burden, and they take a lot of the spiritual hits. And what we don't realize is we're in this together, okay? But while we're in this together, those in the authority bear the greater brunt. So when we make wrong choices, it affects the spiritual temperament of the body. When we make good choices, it also affects the spiritual temperament of the body. So our lives surrendered to God becomes a blessing to the, to, to, to the body. Our lives in rebellion to God become a curse to the body. Okay? We don't exist in isolation. Our sins are never private. They just aren't. That's not how it works on a spiritual level. On a spiritual level, it may seem private because I'm in my home and you may be in your home, but the Holy Spirit's through all of us. It's connected. So when I sit against the Holy Spirit, it connects with everything together. Kind of a network together. It has an impact on the body. It affects my temperament, my disposition. It affects the spirit. It's grieving the spirit. And he talks about that. And we'll come to that, about grieving the spirit. When I grieve the spirit, it affects that within the body. And if we want to see God of revival poured out, and we want to see God come forth, it, not to be under condemnation, it means let's press into each other. So for, if you're in a sin, a besetting sin, confess the sin. God, repent, confess the sin, ask for forgiveness, and ask for accountability that you can walk forward in life. That's what's available to all of us. Okay? It's not about condemnation, because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It says that in Romans. Okay? It's about, hey, how do we get out of darkness, get out of sleepiness, and get into light? Every time we sin, we're in darkness. Every time we sin, we're in darkness. Okay? But, so, the people in darkness, in their strength, they cannot come to the light. They can't, they won't have the life of Jesus in them. They can't. They may say some nice words and nice expressions. They may have some nice behaviors, but they're still spiritually dead. But the people who are sons of the light, unfortunately, can go into darkness. We came from darkness. We know that road well. We can choose those things again. If we choose the darkness again, it will put us asleep. It will grieve the Holy Spirit. It will quench the Spirit, suffocate it. 
our consciences may become seared. We will die inside. Adam and Eve died that day spiritually on the day they sinned. It said they dead, they dead spiritually. When we choose sin, we injure ourselves spiritually. It's like stabbing ourselves every time we do it. But God has an easy way out. He says, what do you do? You ask God. It's a gift that he gives, right? Okay? Freely given to turn away from sin, to turn to God. Confess, God, I screwed up. I need life. Look at me. I thought of myself and didn't think of you. I thought of my selfishness. I didn't trust in you. I didn't seek you in that moment. I didn't pray. I saw it myself. I was selfish. I was in rebellion. I ask for humbly for your forgiveness. Change my heart. It causes a change of heart that causes a turn from sin. You have to ask God. You have to plead with Him to change your heart because our heart, Jeremiah 79, is deceptively wicked. God changes our heart. And then you walk back in light. There is a path for us always to walk in light. That's what Paul is encouraging them and admonishing them. Now, I'm not trying to cast your salvation to question. I'm not saying, ah, if you do one sin, that's it, you're going to hell. That's not at all what I'm communicating. What I am saying is God wants us to be sons of the light. God wants us to walk in holiness. And part of that also is receiving what are those who are oversee us admonish us. When pastor, when others, when they're, when we're, when they're sharing about the gospel, is do we listen? Are we awake? Do we receive what they say? And do we decide, okay, I need to put that in practice. Let me put that in prayer. God, I mean, have, I, have you not been in a service to go, oh, wow, I didn't even know I was not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I didn't realize how off I was. I need to have my plumb line reset. Thank you. I come in service, and I hear the message. Every time I do, my plumb line is reset. That's the admonishment they do. And so we need to pray. Ask us to pray for the leaders. Continually pray for those over us, that they have protection, that they're supported. Okay, they're encouraged. Pastor shared about being down at times, dejected. Look at your mission. Instead of always taking... A consumer mentality is, what are they here to give me? What does church here to give me? I go to church where they give me. I don't like this church because they're not giving me, they're not meeting my needs. That's the phrase. They're not meeting my needs. They don't work for my family. We don't get all the stuff that we want. That's not biblical. That's not what we're called to be. That is selfish. That's what going to, like, I want that church to be a Walmart to meet all of the things I want. There is no perfect church. You know why? Because you're in it. I'm in it. As long as I'm in it, it's not going to be perfect. Okay? So it can't be that way. What we need to do is we all step into the role that God does, and as we grow together, seeking the Lord more diligently, God does something special. 
So that's what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. And that's why he's asking them. He's to esteem them very highly. They are not perfect either. You're not esteeming them because they're perfect. You're not esteeming them because they speak the best, they're the most eloquent, they're whatever that you want, most charismatic. Okay? I love our pastors here, and I love those who preach here. They are not the most charismatic. They're not. Okay? But that's a good thing. Because then you know God's working through that. Then when you know when you hear something that changes you, it's the Lord God Almighty. And I want God more than I want man. Okay? And so you esteem them. Why? Because they're surrendered to the Lord. You esteem them because they choose to walk this path, a difficult path, a painful path, surrendered, trusting the Lord, going down, not taking all they want. And we all do that. The choice I have is, do, the world says, go for the gusto. You got to do what's in your best interest. Maneuver yourself so you can get the best that you can for yourself. That's what the world chases, particularly Western society. You got to, you know, do the best that you can. When I made the decision to step away from the job, well, you got to do what's good for you and your family. You got to do what's good for you. They see that from that mindset. The only good that's good for us is that which makes us more like Christ, falls in love with Him more. Anything that makes us more obedient to the Word of God and more like Christ, that's the good for us. But anything else that builds us worldly value is not the good. Now, I'm not saying God won't use that. And God may want you to do certain things for that purpose, for the purpose of Christ, not for the purpose of self. That's the challenge we have to look at. And that is contrary to the world. Our leaders choose that. Anybody who sincerely surrenders to pastorhood chooses that. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of charlatans, especially in those, in those, some of the charismatic circles will say the name it and claim it and prosperity gospels, they besmirch the name of God, okay? It's vile, wicked, they'll be count to account, okay? They are unregenerated, choosing self over everything. Okay, all ego, all based on pride. You can tell the pride, just they're steeped in pride. It soaks out of them. Not sincere humility. One good test to check. Anybody who speaks out of pride is in complete opposition to the Lord. God says that. So moving on, oh... Let me finish this last one here. Yes, then we'll do the next one next week. 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So, we talked about the, the last um, bit that I've read about encouraging one another, about esteeming and acknowledging those who lead over us, but it also means we're responsible for each other. When you see a brother or a sister stumbling and or choosing a path 
that's astray, we have to call them to an account. We have to sit them down and talk with them and encourage them. But we have to say, hey, what you're doing is not right. We've had to do that as a body. The leadership had to. Pastors had to do that here. And when they haven't received it, there's sometimes when you've done one, then, you, you know, Matthew um, 15 or 18. 18, thank you, Matthew 18. Um, you go to take one, then you take two, and you have to speak in front of the church. We've had to do that here. But the idea is you want to get at the front end at the very beginning so it doesn't have to go to that. One-on-one, -on -one, when you see a brother stumble before it becomes something really big, talk to them. When you see that they're choosing things that are very worldly and fleshly, talk with them. When you see that they're discouraged, they're not trusting, encourage them. See where they're at. You'll see that. That's something we have to be sensitive to. So are we so focused here on when we go and seeing where we are at? I'm not saying you don't need to address yourself. But I'm saying are you looking around to see, hey, they don't seem to be doing so well. Are you spending time with your brothers or sisters in Christ to see how they're doing? To give them a hug. To see how we can encourage them. How we can lift them up. And he says here, see, no one renders evil for evil. God says, vengeance is mine. Human nature is if somebody does wrong to you, you want to strike back. You want revenge. You want an account. You want justice. That's human nature. When I see injustice, we want to correct that often to smite them, to make them learn a lesson. That is not what God wants. That is in opposition to God. It's rooted in our self-righteousness and our critical spirit. It's not rooted in God's love. And so, when evil, what says to turn the issue, when evil is done to us, how do we respond? First, we have to go to the Lord. We can't respond apart from God. Our flesh will not do anything of any good. So go to God. You can say, God, David said that all through the, through the Psalms. He says, look at this. What's happening to me? It's okay to confess those things to the Lord and say, God, I don't understand. God, how can this be happening to me? This is unfair. To which the Lord will usually say, what I did on the cross, that was unfair. What I did for you, that was unfair. Are you willing to take a little unfair for me? Are we really willing to take that? Are we really willing to turn the other cheek? Are we really willing to receive persecution and not strike back? Especially when we've done the right thing. That's the hardest. When you do wrong and you get punished, you know, we know that. But when you do the right thing and you get punished, you're like... Like that expression, no good deed goes unpunished, meaning that we shouldn't do good deeds because we're going to get punished. Like, what's an expression is that? Basically saying that's what happens. You get that. And so it encourages wickedness. That's not of the Lord. No. Scripture says good deeds were done with the right heart will get rewarded. 
when you do the right thing, God is pleased, regardless of the consequences. Have to have the right motivation. Right thing, right motivation. God is honored and esteemed, even when you get punished for it. And there will be rewards in heaven. He will, he notices everything that's done. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, to which audience are you performing? To which audience are you performing? So I'm going to stop there. Um, and we'll do the last ones next week because we're near the end here. Um, There's a lot more we could go into, but I want you to get Paul's heart for the Thessalonian church is giving them perspective, letting them how to interact with each other, fixed on eternity, know there's going to be consequences of actions, but knowing what it means to come back to the right path. And that's what the body is. We always have to make corrections all the time. We need that admonishment and support. So we need the admonishment that we get, but we also need encouragement and support. We need that hug. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you, Lord, thanking you for your goodness. Father, thanking you, Lord, that um, your love never fails. You never fail. And that everything that you do is right, is pure, is holy, is perfect. You are perfect in all of your ways in all your ways in dealing with us, especially when we don't understand. Help us to trust you, to follow you, to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.